We are just checked that we are live and we are live. So hello, welcome everyone to the September 2019 hashtag exchange chat. Um, today we're going to be talking about the complexity of chronic pain management. So really in store for a really good one today. Um, we're joined by Stephen George. Um, he's a physical therapist. Um, and, you know, if you haven't been part of, the, of an exchange chat before, you can interact uh, both on Facebook Live and there's also a Twitter conversation happening right now. So all you got to do is follow hashtag exchange SA. If you have any questions for us, you can drop it right into the live comments. Um, we'll, we'll put it right in the queue and we'll um, ask Dr. George to answer that. Um, but just some general announcements uh, just before we get started here. Um, so as we all know, APTA National Student Conclave um, just around the corner. As we all know, it's very, very close. October 31st and November 2nd, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Registration and programming are online now. Um, registration, early bird registration, um, op or it ends on uh, September 25th, so that's Wednesday. Um, so if you're if you're going to register and you want to go to NSC, you definitely have to do it by Wednesday in order to secure, secure the price discount. Also, programming that link will be dropped right in the comments below. Um, also, PT Pub Night will be on Thursday night on Halloween night. PT Pack Party will be on Friday night. Definitely, if you want to, you know, hang out with us, definitely go to the PT Pack Party. I believe the tickets are ten or fifteen dollars, so make sure you purchase that when you're registering for NSC because we definitely want y'all there. Um, to have a good time with all of us. Um, also, Choose PT at Good Morning America is happening very, very soon. I believe the date is October 25th. So if you are in the New York City area around October 25th, definitely consider going um, to Choose PT Good Morning America. There's a high possibility you'll be on TV. Um, so, you know, definitely check that out. That Facebook link will be dropped in the comments below as well, so you can kind of check out the details surrounding that. Also, we want to congratulate all the students out there, student PTs, student PTAs, also regular uh, physical therapists, physical therapist assistants for a really awesome, really successful Flash Action Strategy 2019. We signed over 13,000 letters, uh, messages, and they were sent to Congress advocating for student loan um, forgiveness and working in the rural area. So we, we really, really thank you all for, for your participation in that um, super successful Flash Action Strategy. So uh, awesome, good, awesome job, everyone. Also, 2019-2020, APTA Board of Directors candidates, APTA SA Board of Directors candidates, they have been announced. Um, it's been announced for a month now, roughly. So if you go to NSC, definitely check them all out. Um, if any of the candidates are, are on right now, definitely, you know, shoot everyone a high, tell everyone, tell everyone hey. Um, and, you know, if you're going to NSC, you can definitely vote on all your future leaders. So um, check out the candidate statements. Check out what they're all about. Um, they'd, be, they'd be more than happy to talk to you about anything um, that you want to talk about. And... You heard it first here. We have the October um, Exchange SA chat. Um, it is scheduled, and it's going to be two weeks from now, 7 p.m., so our regular time. It'll be October 6, 7 p.m., um, with Joseph Donnelly. He's a physical therapist, and he's the president of the Academy of Orthopedics for the APTA. And we're going to be talking about trigger points, um, dry needling, and myofascial pain syndrome. Um, he helped write um, a book on that. It's called uh, Myofascial Pain um, Dysfunction, um, and that'll be kind of posted in the, uh, in the comments as well, if you're considering buying it before the chat or, or you know, what have you. But uh, we're really excited to have him on. He's really going to share his really awesome insight there. Um, and to round it all out, you know, always we're looking for Pulse contributors. So uh, if you're, you know, you're an author, you're, you're looking to be an author, um, definitely reach out to us. We'd be more than happy to take any submissions, any ideas that you guys have. And um, you can submit those um, inquiries to pulse at apta.org. Um, so, yeah, so anyone who's joining us tonight, you shout out in the comments if you're a DPT student, a PTA student, um, fresh PT, or, you know, anyone else who's joining in, shout out, um, shout out yourselves. Um, we'd be happy to say hi to you. Perfect. So, yeah, so we're, we're really, really pumped to be joined by Stephen George. So I'd love to give uh, Dr. George an opportunity to kind of, you know, talk about what's, what's been going on um, recently with himself. So that's my cue. That's your cue. Thanks. Thanks, Kyle, for having me um, and uh, very much looking forward uh, to the interaction. I'll, I'll probably keep this part relatively short because um, the questions and whatnot will <clears throat> be more interesting uh, than my background or, or what I'm up to. But um, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a physical therapist and I've been uh, involved with studying pain uh, since about 2002, I guess, officially. That's when I started my postdoc. I did work clinically for about seven years uh, at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and, and had a lot of uh, I had a, a lot of variety in my clinical experience, but it did 
eventually get honed down to outpatient orthopedics. Um, and that's where, uh, this was in the 90s, uh, mid-90s, and that's where I really started um, noticing some discrepancies with kind of what, what we were taught about pain and what was actually happening in the real world. Um, that, that, the, noticing those discrepancies really led to the next phase of my career, which was research. And I, I've really been working on, you know, making progress on some of those clinical questions ever since then. Um, and, and, and one of them I'm very interested in is, you know, what are some tools that physical therapists can use to help predict, uh, you know, outcomes, um, particularly, you know, which are the patients we maybe need to be a little bit more aware of that, that may need different approaches. Um, our, I've also been very interested in uh, spinal manipulation as a non-pharmacological treatment. Um, this We used to just call it spinal manipulation, uh, but with the opioid crisis, you have to make sure that you say non-pharmacological. So spinal manipulation is one of the non-pharmacological treatments that we've been really interested in. Scientifically, I know there's a lot of baggage with um, manipulation in our profession legally. Um, and, and I think luckily a lot of that's been resolved, you know, most places, most states, if not all of them, you can, you can do some form of it and you might have to be careful how you document it. But, you know, we've really been interested in, in how that type of treatment um, interacts with your, with your nervous system. And then more recently have been um, drifting into looking at, you know, health services research type of um, how, how should PTs be positioned in health systems to deliver care for pain? You know, what are the things that PTs need to be doing to um, limit the variability of the treatments they do? That's a tension, right, between individualized care and, and variability in care. And, and no one has a really good answer to that, to be honest with you, because, you know, if you talk about completely individualized care, um, that's also probably care that's highly variable. Um, so getting an idea of what are the boundaries, um, you know, around individualized care that also um, can be defensible when you talk to payers or you talk to policymakers. Um, so that's kind of, you know, what right now uh, my head's spinning with what we have going on. I actually probably will be meeting with my research team um, at eight o'clock after this uh, to finalize something. Um, one of our protocols is being reviewed on Tuesday, so we have to get our slides in um, first thing Monday morning. And um, so we, you know, we'll touch base. We've been working on those this weekend, and, and um, hopefully that'll be a quick call. And then we'll send that off to the NIH. Uh, we've had some interesting papers come out, if I do say so myself, in the last uh, couple months. So we're always working on, you know, writing and, and uh, getting that information out into the peer review. Um and, you know, finishing up with some trainees and, and you know, just kind of trying to make the world a little a little better place through through doing uh, research that uh, people find, you know, to be helpful. Absolutely. I, and, you know, with you saying that, I really appreciate you budgeting your, in your time, um, you know, for the chat. I really appreciate that. I know, as you've been saying, you have a very busy schedule. So, you know, the students, everyone out there, we're, we're all grateful that, uh, that you're, you're able to come on. Um, and also. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, also, uh, Stephen also did the uh, Mailey Lecture at Next 2016 in Nashville, Tennessee. So um, one of the board members will also drop that into the into the comments below. So if you, you know, if you have extra time or you want to um, check that out, it's a really, really awesome hour, um, hour long video. You can really learn about uh, more about what Dr. George has been researching with chronic pain. Um, yeah, so I know James already put it in the comments, but, you know, if anyone has any questions for Dr. George, again, we would love to take those. So just drop those in the comments. And, um, and we'll be happy to, to put those in the queue and we'll get them answered for you. Awesome. So I think, you know, it's, it's really good. I think it's pertinent to start out, you know, with a good foundation. So I think if you could just talk about the physiology of pain, um, I think that would be a really good starting block for the chat, if you could. Okay. Um, and, and truth be told, not one of my strong points. So, um, but, but it's actually okay. You can, you can be as weak as I am in the physiology of pain and, and still understand it. And I think part of that is um, there is, for those who study the physiology of pain, um, what we have learned is there's tremendous, you know, redundancy in carrying nociception. I mean, really, physio the physiology of pain is the, the change from nociception to pain, right? That's really what it boils down to. Everything in the periphery that ends up being painful starts as nociception. It, it, mm. and, and, and I hate 
I sound like a broken record because people have been saying that, but it, it, that really is the issue with physiology is how much of that is, you know, physiologically driven that transfer of nociception to pain. And the answer is probably most of it. Um, I think where it's hard to understand it is, you know, well, what individual receptor is involved? What individual pathway is involved? And then what individual spinal cord elements and what individual cortical? Um, the answer is it's, it's all of the above. So I tend to keep a pretty basic understanding of the physiology, which is it has to start <laughs> in the periphery. Um, for most, if not everything that we're interested in, it probably was carried across multiple receptors. Somewhere it got coded in a way that the nervous system had to pay extra attention to it. Um, whether that's through a lot of peripheral receptors being activated across variety of stimuli, um, whether that was amplification at the spinal cord or whether that was coding in, in the cortical region, um, in a way that suggested this was a, this nociception was um, linked with tissue damage. So that you know that to me is kind of the basic physiology. Um, of course, that is insulting to all physiologists, but um, I find that's a good way to think about it in my research realm. I also find that's a good way to think about it in the clinical situation too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we have a question that just came in from uh, Eddie Ernst. Thank you for uh, joining us, Eddie. How much limit? He says, how much limitation should be put on passive modalities when it comes to chronic pain? So I guess he's talking about like things like e-stim, um, ultrasound, and, and modalities like that. Maybe even manual therapy. If that's a, right. if you call that a passive modality. Um, so we want to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because, um, and and. From an evidence-based perspective, um, there's a lot of concerns about those modalities being effective. What what has really changed the world, though, of pain management is it's it, those aren't harmful or addictive. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that we've become aware of um, when a lot of um, people were looking at the modalities, they were viewed as you know skilled services like you had to have high skill and they were worthy of you know being billed by um, a skilled person and then they did a bunch of research and they found you know what a lot of them aren't that much better than placebo um, so then they got kind of downgraded evidence-wise and then what happens is you're then only left with pharmaceutical pharmacological and then you end up with some things that are um you know, potentially addictive, there's other side effects. So, you know, I think the way I look at we limiting these is you really want to limit them as part of the skilled services that you're providing. But they're great for self-management of pain. They're great for people to do at home. Um, you know, the hot pack that people used to charge $100 for and was sitting in the hydrocolator and then you took it out and you set it on them, you know, that model is clearly broken. But instructing someone that they can go to Walgreens and, and buy a heating pad and they can do heat a couple times, especially if it helps modulate the pain, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And in fact, the most recent um, practice-based guidelines for the American College of Physicians, you know, suggest a whole host of these things should be considered for frontline pain management. Some of them that you guys, the students would probably get uh, negative points on an essay if you wrote you were going to use these in an EVP class. So, you know, it really is a balance. And to me, that balance is, um, you know, I think they should be limited in how they're paid for and who delivers them. But I, I think they also offer some nice um, alternatives for self-management of pain. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually just saw something recently on the uh, doctor of physical therapy students group where the, there's a particular referral from a physician or, you know, some other medical provider um, to a physical therapist who's in the group. And he put in the referral that he only wanted um, him to do, uh, you know, soft tissue, soft tissue uh, mobilization, you know, everything past modality, e-stim, ultrasound, and um, no active movement, no resistive movement. And I think it was for cervical spine pain. Mm -hmm. So I guess, what do you say to, you know, those, you know, those, cl those clinicians out there that are, you know, sending these referrals um, to us for only doing passive modalities? I, I guess we're saying, how do we best educate um, those other healthcare professionals about the importance of, you know, exercise and, and more active modalities? 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's depending on, I, I personally think this is where it depends. Is this a referral source? If it's one time, there's probably not much you can do about it. Um, if this is someone you're going to work with and it's a, you know, it's a referral source, then you need to take the time and energy and, and invest and say, you know, I, this, this, what you writ, wrote, wrote here is fine, but really this is, this is something that um, is really only maybe one or two sessions of skilled care. Um, there are other options that I could work into this person's treatment plan. Um, if you feel comfortable, maybe we can try that for the next five, six people you want to refer to me and I can, you know, what information do you want from me um, to assure you that I'm not being too aggressive. It also gives you a chance to find out, you know, why that referral was written that way. You know, it could be they had a terrible experience with prior PTs who, um, you know, pushed way too hard. It could be, um, you know, they they don't understand the full gamut of your skill set because, you know, our profession has evolved. Um, so I think it allows you to kind of get into the weeds a little bit and, and find out a, a, about that. Um, but I do think um, you have to be realistic about changing that behavior and it, and it will take a little bit of work. And I think that's where um, there's actually a lot of opportunities and there are people who have been very, you know, innovative and entrepreneurial with the way, um, you know, they deliver, deliver their care and they get buy-in, you know, from referring providers. And, and in many states, you know, you can maybe, you don't even need that. I know there's still issues with the reimbursement, um, but there's, you know, there are certain ways to market directly to patients um, who are willing to pay for the services um, in, a, in a different model and different payment models, you know, like a cash. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think a lot of it depends on deciding how you want to practice and then, you know, activating that. And if it's a referral for, source that's constantly giving you that referral that you feel isn't, um, you know, consistent with how you would like to practice, there's not, nothing wrong with voicing that in a professional, tactful way and seeing what the result is. Absolutely. And I think also we should also be, we should also be cognizant and be ready to prepare our rationale for that. And we should have evidence, you know, to, if we get on the phone with them to prepare why we're, you know, why we're saying this, why we're thinking this way. Yeah. So we can actually have, you know, something that we can back up our thoughts with, you know, if we're going to, you know, talk about saying that this really isn't skilled care that the prescription says, so we need to be doing X, Y, and Z instead to yeah. kind of make sure that they progress the way that they should pe- they should be progressing, right? And a minor correction there. You don't want to say it's not skilled care. You'd say this is a lower skill, right? Because mm-hmm. you don't want to insult, you know, you don't want to insinuate that this is beneath you or that person doesn't. So I think let them know I can do this, but this is, you know, this would be one or two sessions. And if I have eight sessions, you know, I want to have more of an open end. Um, and I think you do. There's a balance too, especially as students. Um, they're not the referring physician is not your professor you're trying to impress. <laughs> they don't want a long reference list. They probably want one or two punchy, you know, responses and maybe a key reference because they're not going to read it um, first of all. And if it's in a PT journal, they they may not it may not be on their radar. But I think if you you find out a little bit, say this is what I can do. You know, for the next five, I'll give you this, this, you know, we'll record their pain and their function outcomes. I'll follow up with a real short progress note. It won't be something that you have to weed through. Um, And I'll let you know if the patient was satisfied with it or not. And then we can go from there. So just balance because they assume, you know, that evidence like you, you have to have that knowledge of it, but not always feel like you have to bring it with you. And that's that's the challenge as a student because we test you guys constantly and, and you have to show it all the time. Um, it has to be in there because if you do run into the person who says, well, I want to know te- the 10 papers on that, then you say, I'll follow up with an email. I'll attach all those. I know right where those are. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome answers. Uh, so we have another audience question. This is from, um, hope I say it right. Janine Bedner. Um, so awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. So she says, how often do you find that fearing pain limits a patient's progress and how do you help them trust you? It's a really good question. It is a really good question. And um, I'll answer it like I do all of these in my stage in my career. I don't see patients uh, that much because I'm a full-time researcher. So I'm I'm digging back to the past um, when I first became aware of this. But fear is one of the things that I I was measuring 
with the fear avoidance belief questionnaire in the clinic in the 90s. And um, first of all, you know, you have to measure it because it isn't always obvious. And there's lots of studies saying that a therapist's, you know, belief or perception of fear or depression or catastrophizing um, is, is, doesn't correlate well with their questionnaire. So first of all, you have to measure it to be aware of it. Second of all, the, the question about how often does it limit? And, and, and I would say, you know, it can be up to, in, in a ballpark, 80% of someone's limitation, depending on how fearful they are uh, and how ingrained that fear is in impacting their behaviors and their activities. And it could be a very small percent. It could be 10%. But it, 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 I always think of it as somewhere on the spectrum. And I, I can, you know, can tell you, uh, am I allowed to do anecdotes, you know, from the past, you know, things from the, from the past? Um, really became aware of this. I used to treat a fair amount of adhesive capsulitis and um, frozen shoulder. And I really like those folks because you basically got to, you know, be very aggressive, mow the heck out of their shoulders, be, because we would get them when they were kind of out of the acute stage and it was in the, it's time to get moving stage. And I would, people would come in and be very guarded and, and, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And I worked in a, in a system in pit, it was capitated care at the time. So we would see them for evaluation, write up what we were going to do. And we had to wait a week. Mm -hmm. So I started doing two things. One, reducing their anxiety and fear. I would say, you're here, you're ready to move. We know a lot about adhesive capsulitis. And one of the things we know is if you move it, it's not going to hurt it more. In fact, the treatment for this is going to be, I'm going to push, 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 push. And then I would give them a simple home exercise, like a pendulum exercise, just to get them used to like, you know, relaxing their shoulder. And a lot of times when they came back from a week of, of that, um, that would be their largest gain in range of motion um, in that week while they were waiting for their insurance to be approved. And, and I attributed a good portion of that to reducing their fear and anxiety and giving them the permission, you know, to move this now. So that might be a case where it's, you know, it's now I did help, you know, we did get in there and, and get some of the things to make sure overhead activities and all that were good. Um, but that is, in my mind, the classic example where I didn't touch this person for a week. I gave them pendulum exercises, which most people say, you know, are hooey because they, they don't do all that much. Um, but I had a very direct, you know, it's okay, it hurts, but you're not damaging it anymore. And in fact, if you come back to see me, we're going to move it a lot. Um, so that's just one example. And, and uh, there's stories like that for back pain, neck pain, you know, Cervical collars are another great example of that. Yeah, it, it really all comes down to just patient education, right? Especially, you know, for something like adhesive capsulitis, like you're talking about with uh, with your experience, it's like you just have to educate that that movement is good, movement is, is beneficial for the joint, and that you will not be damaging it, and actually in turn you'll be helping it. So I right. think it, it's as really as basic as that. It just kind of goes back to, you know, patient education, but it's sometimes you just need to tailor it in different ways, Right. And the report, the report part, I didn't address that directly in just hearing you say that, you know, the report part really comes in with with being willing to listen. Notice I didn't say you're not in pain. Mm -hmm. I didn't say I didn't believe you. I didn't say you shouldn't be hurting this much. You know, I take all the judgment out and the report really is listening, being aware of it, registering it and saying, I still think it's OK you know, based on my skills, because there may be time when that pain is a, a signal of damage or we need to hold up. It's just I think that happens. And most research suggests that happens much less frequently than PTs. You know, there are m many more PTs backing off uh, because someone has more pain than are doing that because of the damage. And that rapport is getting that person to understand that you are want to help them move forward, um, but you're not gonna, you know, steamroll them. You're mm -hmm. gonna listen, um, but you're gonna be the slow, steady force that keeps them going in the direction, um, you know, that they, we all think they need to go in. Absolutely. Um, sometimes that takes a lot of work. Sometimes, you know, it doesn't, but it's all those things. It's sitting down, even though it's a busy day, sitting down, looking them in the eye, 
hearing the story that you don't want to hear <laughs> because you got <laughs> other patients, but you have to listen to it. Maybe you don't get the full director's cut version from them. Maybe you say, yes, I have, you know, I have a couple minutes. Um, what's bothering you the most today? Let's talk a little bit about that. What did you accomplish, you know, between the last two sessions that you're most happy about? Let's talk about that. Um, and then I'll, you know, I'll be back. That can go a very long way. Absolutely. And you kind of, it, it seems like you kind of went into a little bit of motivational interviewing. You kind of see, yeah, right. what, you know, positively that they've done, you know, yesterday. What did they accomplish yesterday? So have you, you know, read anything about motivational interviewing? I'm sure that you've done research on it or that you've read um, research about it. But have, how have you kind of found it's how efficacious it is? Well, I think, you know, it's one of those things. It's really tricky to really isolate that and say, you know, this is effective or not. But it's certainly one of the studies that I'm involved with, you know, and, and we've been working on training PTs and doing psychologically informed approaches. And these are for the people that um, we expect there to be, or we've measured high levels of fear and catastrophizing. So MI, motivational interviewing is definitely a part of that. And we actually have developed that with psychologists, excuse me. And, you know, it, it really is, one of the things I was struck by in working with psychologists is the importance of affirmation. And I think back to how good we are as PTs in developing problem lists. And from a psychologist perspective, you know, that's just reinforcing the negative and how you have to take time to do some affirmation. So a, a framework like motivational interviewing is really nice because you have, it forces you to do that. And it's very interesting when we're teaching a room of 35 people, these psychologically informed approaches, one of the things experienced PTs struggle with is affirmations. They, they have a hard time. And I think that's where as a new grad, you know, you don't have the polluted brain of 20 years of developing problem lists. Um, you can have that more balanced where, you know, you're going to affirm. Uh, because from the psychological behavioral perspective, we know you get more from positive reinforcement. And if you're not, if you're focusing only on what they can't do and not um, building in what they can do behaviorally, you're not doing the best, you know, the best job that you can do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I really love that answer and really appreciate you sharing that with us and kind of your experience um, revolving uh, around MIs. That's uh, that's awesome. We have so some we use it under a broader term. And if you want to, you know, psychologically informed physical therapy is actually a, a term. Um, and there's a few papers out there that we published with psychologists for people who are interested in that. But MI is definitely one of the key, you know, interaction skills that we that we try to build into that. Fabulous. I, mean, I think I'm seeing it more in different PT curriculums as well. It's definitely being built in um, as a method for for managing the, the patient with uh, complex chronic pain. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. So we have some some more uh, audience questions, which is awesome. Um, this is from Aaron Sales. So, hey, everyone. Hey, Aaron, thank you for joining us. She says, what do you feel is the best way to try to change the mindsets of, mindset of patients to something more positive um, that were given many negative ideas about their condition? For example, you know, their knee, their joint is bone on bone or, you know, the worst knee that my doctor's ever seen. If like a physician maybe says that to the patient, you know, how, how do we best change that mindset for them? Well, I think... Um... I'm going to give you the psychologist answer because I've worked with them a lot. Um, only the patient can change that mindset, right? And, and that's a key tenet to MI. So I would say your job is to give the opportunities that that person can see that that mindset is a, is a limiting one. Because I think you can, you can again, you can give them all the research. And, and for some people, that's going to work. But I think, you know, talking to them about um, – you know, what does it really mean bone on bone? I like to throw out things when, when people bring that up because I, lecturing doesn't work. Um, you know, oh, bone on bone. Yeah, we hear that a lot. Did you know there's a lot of patients, yeah, there's a lot of people out there with bone on bone that never have had pain before. And just let that sink because, again, from, from an MI type of perspective, the best time for that to change someone's mind is when they're super curious about it. Not when I give them that factual pamphlet that says, you know, bone on bone doesn't always cause pain. So I, you know, think of opportunities to bring that out and then wait for them to come to me to that. I think the other way is structuring the treatment progression so that there are lots of successes and that, again, that focus isn't on what they can do, but that focus is really on, oh, look at what you are doing. 
despite this is the worst knee ever. And you can really almost turn it into um, I'm doing so well um, despite that. So, you know, I think to answer that, and it is a really good question. Part of it is, you know, resisting the urge to lecture because again, your students, you have all this wonderful information and it's important information and it's the right information, um, but not overwhelming people and, and finding out, you know, when is the time that I can help this person kind of change direction? And you'll find this, this, I have relatives who, you know, know me and trust me. And there's sometimes they like when the, my dad is a good example, you know, he, his hip bothers him, but he can walk like six miles. He, I'm like, dad, you, you know, and, um, but a physician sees him, takes an x-ray. He has, oh, I have a hip arthritis. Oh, I, you know, I'm like, yeah, um, you do. You're 70 plus years old. There's, you know, 90% of the people in your age group have it. Um, but I have to constantly kind of give him that information and almost talk him down from following up because I said, you know, told him, you know, it's going to happen <laughs> when you go there and you say mm -hmm. my hip hurts and they look at that x-ray. Um, so I think you have to um, realize that not everyone is going to change, but your job is to give them that opportunity, give them the education, give them some opportunities in, in clinic and, but do it in a way, um, you know, that it's not seen as um, you lecturing or, or you, um, I don't know, you know, just not in the way we teach you. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, when you think about it as an educator, some of the things that we do to you, you're just reflecting back to the patients. And it just, it's unfortunate because some of this stuff has to be delivered in a way so 70, 80 people can get the same information as once. at once. Um, you know, you don't have to mimic all of that. Um, when you're doing the one-on-one -on -one patient interactions. Absolutely. So that was a little bit of a rambler, but hopefully that, that makes sense for, for Aaron. No, that's good. You know, and I, it's, it's awesome that you said DJD because, you know, you, you see it with plenty of other things too, like degenerative disc disease, torn hip labrum, you know, torn shoulder labrum. Like there's so many individuals, and I, I forget there was, there was a study. I forget, I forget which one it was, but it was giving the percentage of people, you know, by age bracket who have those types of changes but it's not necessarily the cause of their pain. And, you know, those individuals who do have those changes don't, don't actually have pain. So I think it's it, like you, like you said before, it's really important to you know educate that just because they, just because they have this doesn't mean like it's actually stemming from that right? or, or vice versa. Right. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So I have another question from Mitch Lane. He's a, uh, he's a Duke student as well. So a shout out to Duke. <laughs> um, he says, how do you think telehealth, which is, um, Big up and coming telehealth um, will be big. Uh, will be able to play a role in the treatment of chronic pain for patients who are in socially isolated areas or rural areas. Yeah, I think obviously it's going to be a yeah a game changer. I mean, one can appreciate the irony of what we're doing right here, um, in, in the context of this question. Um, so the there's no question. You know, telehealth will increase the access to. There's been some some fairly recent. Um, I don't think they're seminal studies now, but they will be of, you know, treating depression through telehealth. And, um, you know, I, I think without doubt, you know, some of the people who need that type of information and care have the hardest time getting to clinics consistently. And that um, telehealth will be a great way to do this. You can do a lot of what we just talked about you know, through, um, especially with video, you can, you can do MI, you know, you can interact, you can see things. So I, I really think it will be, um, a potentially a game changer and it's really going to impact the way PTs deliver care. And we're either going to embrace it and, and it will change the model because PTs, you know, we, we want to have that person in front of us. We want to touch them. Um, you know, the, the magic hand stuff. Um, but, there's, you know, there's studies that are coming out. One of them's from, from Duke, you know, that was uh, looking at supervised care versus telehealth care for post-surgical total joint replacement, um, you know, and the care was very, very similar with outcomes. And, and you can guess which one was cheaper. So I think, um, you know, we need to be open of these models and look at them as a way to deliver, you know, our skills, um, and, and adapt and get to people that 
we didn't even know really they existed because they show up in such small numbers at our clinics. You know, we, we, we didn't really get a, um, a good estimation of um, how many of them could benefit. Absolutely. Awesome. So, yeah, so we have, so we have uh, plenty more questions coming in. So uh, we'll definitely t- try to get these answered without, you know, me rambling on as, as answering your question. But Lindsay Jabina says, how would the conversation go to talk about their possible dependency um, if that comes to light during the initial evaluation or the alternatives to pain management that we offer instead of their medication without overstepping or offending the patient and or what they've been told by their doctor? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a tricky realm. I think um, you one thing you, you can always count on is you have a patient advocate role. Um, so part of it is just making that person aware that there are alternatives. We know, unfortunately, that a lot of people don't aren't even aware of alternatives. Um, for the person who's already on medication, it may be, you know, maybe that would have been nice for them to know. But now if they're on, if you can, you know, you can talk to them about there may be ways that you can reduce the dosage and still get, um, you know. And, and so I think it's it's something where you first approach it as the advocate and not like the medical expert because you're going to lose that because it's it's related to and, and a lot of this also depends on what your relationship is with the physician. And this, again, just stresses the importance. And I'm assuming this isn't done as part like like a formal opioid tapering. You know, there are right. programs where PTs are involved, and, and the explicit stated goal is let's get this person off drugs. Um, I'm assuming this isn't that type of program. You know, this is just some something where you're maybe seeing it in, 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 in a clinic um, or in a hospital, and it comes up. And then your job is to find out what the next step is to get that person moving in that direction. Is it is it to schedule a call with the physician on that patient's behalf because it came up? Um, is it to make them aware? Maybe you work in a hospital that has a program. Make them aware of that because I think depending on how bad you know the dependency is, um, you need this is a multidisciplinary problem. Not everything is multidisciplinary, but if you're talking about changing drug dosages. Um, and, and then, you, you know, you need to make sure that everyone gets on the same page. Otherwise, you're going to be viewed as the person who's, you know, overstepping their bounds um, and is potentially, you know, getting in the way of the medical management. Um, unfortunately, you know, and, and we've started working with primary care physicians, most of them are trained, you know, to write for pain. They're now being trained to not write for opioids for pain, but there's still the trigger is to write for, you know, a, a pharmaceutical prescription for pain. Hopefully in five, 10 years, that prescription pad will have some common, you know, non-pharmacological approaches and the system will be better at getting people access to those. Yeah. And I think that, I think an awesome kind of follow-up to that question, you know, everyone knows we're heading into national physical therapy month in October, you know, with the huge buzz about the ha- uh, hashtag choose PT campaign, you know, the website just got rebranded, so it's not MoveForwardPT.com anymore. It's now actually ChoosePT.com. Um, so, like, the logo changed, so everything's, everything's, you know, changing in regards to ChoosePT. So I think it's kind of it, – it's good as we're moving into that month. So how can we, like, choose for the ChoosePT campaign, why is it so important and why um, is it important to educate patients and other healthcare professionals, and not just, you know, not just physical therapists, not just doctors, but other healthcare professionals on other options to manage pain? And it can't, it's, maybe it's not even PT, you know, maybe it's, you know, some other methods to, to manage pain. So how do we go about doing that? Well, I think, you know, the, what I have always struggled with is, I think you hit on it, is, you know, how, how much of this is viewed as kind of a business move, you know, and how much of it is, is you know, for the patient's best interest. So I think, you know, one of the things in this era that you can say is, you know, exposure to PT definitely has an impact on longer-term opioid use. So that's, you know, that's that's one thing everyone can agree on. That doesn't mean PT is the most effective thing in the world. In fact, you know, I don't, I'd, I'd be willing to say people don't get better pain relief with PT. It's just they have a lot less adverse events um, and they get comparable pain relief. So I think part of it is just acknowledging that early PT exposure is just sets you on a good trajectory. Um, 
And then, you know, beyond that, I think um, it's being really honest about um, that doesn't mean that the PTs are a curative agent. It doesn't mean that it's the only treatment. Um, and that's where you, you know, we've talked about in research how important it probably will be for PTs to partner with other non-pharmacological providers that we traditionally haven't partnered with. But I think if we're doing this right, you know, you could you could envision a few other providers that we may want to partner with um, and be a stronger voice. Otherwise, it becomes a very fragmented voice um, and it, it can't stand up to the traditional medical specialties. Um, and then I think the last part of that is if there are opportunities where you work to set up models um, to show like proof of demonstration of what Choose PT looks like. Um, you know, take that advantage um, and, and see what happens. We, we generally know, you know, it is cost effective, but we're also beginning to see there are some other unintended, you know, effects. It, it's it, that, because it, it's disrupting the system. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we have noticed in some of the studies, and it's not definitive, but what we've looked at is um, there still seems to be, and I don't know if it's the individual drive or the healthcare systems drive, there still seems to be a push for imaging, diagnostic testing, yeah. even if you see PTs first. And, and you know, it's really interesting because I kind of have gotten to the point where I don't think diagnostic testing is necessarily needed for vast majority of stuff. Um, but the system clearly does because if you, if you see a PT first, um, there's still a good chance that there's going to be some imaging needed. And some of our other providers that have that in their, um, you know, in their cadre don't, you don't see that as much. Mm-hmm. So I think it's being, being supportive appropriately about Choose PT, but also being very um, understanding that this is a new era and that, you know, it's not always going to be as clear cut as it has been, you know, during the opioid crisis. And for that, we need people who are collecting data. And they're interacting with the healthcare system leadership. They're developing these partnerships to see what these models look like and acting on them, you know, when they get the information. It's very challenging. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, you know, patients who do receive imaging, whether it's an X-ray or an MRI, are actually in more pain than the individuals who don't, probably for the same diagnosis, too. You know, okay, right. indirectly, we can say that because, you know, they'll probably you know, get that, get that imaging study. And then the doctor will interpret it and kind of relay that information to them. Like you have arthritis or you have degenerative joint disease. And that kind of, like we've been talking about the whole call kind of catastrophizes their pain and makes it worse. Um, so like indirectly, like we've been talking about, it does seem that patients who get imaging are definitely more pain than those who don't even with physical therapy beforehand. Right. Awesome. So I have a question from Emmy. She um, is asking about the geriatric population. So I don't know if you've worked with the geriatric population, um, but she says, what have your experience with chronic pain in the geri population who may be more susceptible to internalized beliefs of ageism? So kind of the thing I'm getting old and, you know, that I have more pain revolving that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, to be honest, this isn't an area that I've worked a ton in. Um, hmm. Some of some of the people that I have, um, trained with are, are working in this. And I think there's, um, there's actually a really good article from Corey Simon and Greg Hicks on kind of a new paradigm for low back pain in, in older adults. Um, and it really is, um, moving a little bit away from, you know, kind of like the overt expression of pain and, and more being concerned about maybe, you know, what is the pain with movement? Because that's probably what's limiting their functional um, capacity and functional abilities. And also, um, I think with that population, there's probably more of a push of using physical performance tests and, and not relying as much on self-report. I think you can get away with relying on self-report for certain age groups. But in that, you know, the geriatric excuse me, older adults, you, you probably want to have a few go-to physical performance because someone can tell you that, you know, yeah, this is just normal aging. I have this all the time. Um, and when you do something um, that is not based on self-report, you can 
notice a lot more impairment than maybe that person is is leading on to. And I think also that is important and ties in with the pain with movement. Instead of asking about the pain, you know, when they're at rest, um, have them do some things and, and rate the pain. The good news is, you know, I think, we think, there's still a lot of capacity in older adults to modulate pain. Um, Corey Simon, um, who gets a double plug, um, <laughs> his dissertation project was really interesting because we looked at TENS in three different age groups. And our hypothesis was that the oldest age group, which was 65 plus, it, it was it was a legitimate, you know, because he he fancies himself a specialist in aging. So he's done, you know, he's done the background. He knows what ages you need to be in. Um, and he found that we can get the same amount of, of um, pain relief in older adults with TENS, but the dosage had to be greatly, not greatly, but it had to be, it was statistically higher dosage. And, and what is curious about that is most people kind of back off with the older adults and they, but it, the data that we looked at suggests that, you know, to get that robust pain response, you would actually have to turn the TENS unit higher mm. than you would for someone who's middle-aged. And, and that just reinforces, to me, some of the lessons we've learned with strength training. You know, what is more useless than having an 80-year-old person do three sets of 10? You know, you're much better doing two sets of eight of something that's heavy, mm. um, you know, to challenge the muscle versus just, you know, kind of moving. So I think it kind of reinforces some of the things that we've learned in that population that you do need to challenge their system for it to respond and not, not have, um, you know, back off too much. So it's a really good question. Um, And I encourage you to look at some of Corey's work, Corey Simon and Greg Hicks's work, because they're, they're very, very well aware that we've excluded 65 and plus in a lot of studies that we've done. Absolutely. Including, including me. I'm guilt I'm as guilty as anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's really gonna challenge you gotta challenge them. We gotta get away get away from the yellow and red therabands, right? Yeah. Um, especially if they can tolerate more. Um definitely wanna challenge their system like you've been saying. And, that, and that's and that's definitely as a new grad, that's probably you know, that's a tough thing. You kinda maybe take a little bit of a step back with the geriatric population because you don't want to overload them too too much. But you know, from from your experience and what you've been saying, it's that they definitely, you know, need to be challenged just like you know, your 18 year old lacrosse athlete. Yeah. You know, just as, just as much they need to be challenged. So that's a good thing for, you know, new grad clinicians. You know, myself, when I get out, all the new grads out there and all the students out there right now can kind of put in their back pocket um, for once they hit the clinic and once they hit their clinical rotations. So thank you for that. Yeah. Good stuff. So another question from Nick. He's just, I think he's just kind of asking about, um, you know, research in general, kind of your, your career as a researcher. So he says, as a researcher, how would you best advise those um, of us who are f- going to be fresh PT, soon to be fresh PT, who want to blend a life in research while st- still having some aspect of clinical practice, which it seems like you've been doing? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I guess the blend is a little bit of, um, you know, there was some separation. I, I definitely had seven years, maybe two years were blended and then, you know, kind of moved into more full-time research. But almost all our studies are done in clinical populations. So I fancy myself, you know, still, and I can still talk to clinicians. I still have a, this, this much street cred with uh, clinicians. Um, but I think, you know, the challenge with that is it really depends on what your definition is of being a researcher. Um, there gets to be a time if your goal is to, you know, to do NIH level work and, um, you know, compete in a research one institution. Um, and I'm not saying this is everyone's goal. I'm just saying at, at that time, there are some challenges to continuing your clinical career. Now, what I think is really cool because of the electronic health record and just being aware of other um, places, I think there's going to be a niche for the clinician who wants to be an expert in their own health system and look at outcomes. And, and I think a lot of research, clinical research is going to be done in that model. So I think that model really wasn't available for me. Um, so I think be aware of some places that are offering those. Um, and, and I think one of the things that is nice is, um, you know, those often will lead to leadership roles. If you know how to handle the data, 
um, you know, you can, I think you can move along. And I, I'm thinking of some of the systems that I've worked with, and, and I think they're considered progressive systems still, like UPMC and Intermountain Health and Cleveland Clinic. They have clinicians that, um, you know, serve that kind of research role, and they have access to reams and reams of, of data. Um, so, you you know, that's another way to do it. And then the third way is there are still some traditional academic where they have an affiliated clinic and you can, you know, you can have see some patients and then be part of a research team that often um, includes teaching, too. So those are kind of the three, you know, models in my mind. And it really just depends on what your long, you know, your long term goals are. I can certainly tell you when I was a clinician, it was not my long term goal to be doing what I'm doing now. Um, it just kind of happened. Um, so I don't want anyone to think I had this all pre-planned, <laughs> gone along. You know, it seems like those are the three different different models. Fabulous, fabulous. So I'm sure that adequately answers his question, though. And that, that was great. Um, I know he's very, personally, I know him. I know he's very interested in research. Um, so I think that was awesome. Great. So we have another question from um, Elise Hausman. She's a uh, University of Florida um, DPT student. So I guess shout out to your uh, previ to previously yeah. working there, right? She enjoyed the Tennessee game yesterday, I imagine. <laughs> she says, what, uh, would you suggest we administer, we administer the OSPRO in addition to other outcome measures for every um, MSK patient we see? Well, I think, um, and, and for those who uh, may not know what the OSPRO is, it's a, it's a relatively new tool. We developed it um, down at UF with um, some of our collaborators down there that are um, still around. Um, uh, Joel Bialowski was down there, Giorgio Zepieri, uh, Jason Benichek, and Trevor Lentz is up here with me with Duke now. And, and it's basically a, a questionnaire that is used to estimate um, a bunch of psychosocial factors, um, which you would normally have had to do, you know, like 11 or 12 individual questionnaires. So it greatly reduces that um, item set in a way that it gives you estimates of things like self-efficacy and depression and fear and catastrophizing in a very concise manner. Um, I don't view it necessarily as an outcome. So I, I view it as more of like a risk stratification or a predictive tool. So that, you know, I would just that little caveat um, having been said, you know, the outcome to me is what their pain and disability score might be. And, mm -hmm. and the OSPRO will give you an idea um, of what the risk maybe is for heightened scores. Um, as so far as, you know, administering it to every person, um, if you want to really learn about a tool, then give it to everyone for a year. And then, then you'll tell me whether you need to give it. And I'm not being flip. I'm just saying that's, that's the best way to learn about it. I personally think there's probably some value in giving it to everyone because you can, you can see how it performs on everyone. I worry when people say, oh, we only give this to the people that we think have a lot of distress or a lot of pain because you're you're basically biasing, you know, who you're giving it to. So I would say, yeah, give it to everyone and then see if you need to give it to everyone. And, and, and you can write a paper that says, yeah, I think we do or no, we don't. The guy who was on Facebook Live in September was was wrong. So um, <laughs> that's the wonderful thing about research. Um, we I know there are a few places that are playing around with it right now working on validating it. One place is validating it in back pain only, and they're comparing it to the start back tool. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it has broader use. Our research suggests it's good for knee, back, neck, and shoulder. Um, so I'm really interested to see when people do that, um, you know, how well it performs. Fabulous. Yeah. There's I'll a, add the go gators just to, you know, just to keep uh, it real. That's fabulous. Yeah. At least that's your <laughs> uh, future research. Uh, Interest rate, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. something you can do. Tell Dr. Bialowski to get on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to research that. I don't know too too much about the uh, about the Ospro. Definitely, uh, when we get off, I'll have to take a, a little bit of a closer look at it. Um, she says, "P.S. Dr. Bialowski really misses you." <laughs> well, you can tell him I miss him too. I'd write it in the comments, but I'll I'll, I'll publicly state it. <laughs> <laughs> You're on the record now. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So I think we have time for one more question, and then uh, we'll we'll start wrapping we'll start wrapping it up. Um, so let's see. Uh, we have another question from Mitch Lane, and I think this will be a good way to end it. 
And I don't know about this tool either. I'm not, I'm not positive about this one. He says, what do you believe are the barriers to clinical uptake of promise measures in the spine population, spine surgery population? Um, I think this is, brings me back to a poster. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a couple things going on. And, and one is people love their uh, region-specific legacy measures. So I think there's, there's some familiarity um, issues that, you know, if you've, if you trained with a measure and you're brought up with a measure and, and you feel very comfortable with it, um, you know, that's one of the barriers. I think the other barrier is, um, you know, something that we've tried to do is, is getting it embedded into an electronic health record. So it becomes, you know, seamless, um, has been really challenging, um, at Duke and it, within an Epic based, you know, record. So I think there are some logistic challenges and part of that is, you know, just getting it in, um, do you, which version do you use the short firm? Do you wait for the, you know, computer adaptive testing and, and all of that waiting and, um, you know, also breeds some, some frustration. Um, so I think, and, and I think third, quite frankly, is there's not a ton of incentive right now to do it. The, the people get paid without it, you know, so there's not the reimbursement pressure. Um, you know, I think I think that's going to change, um, you know, as people move to value based care and you're at least going to be showing that you have some outcomes. Um, I think the huge advantage of using something like promise is similar to Ospro is you can you can use it in your spine surgery, folks. And then I can compare that to shoulder surgery in hand and I can tell a health system, you know, who is healthier of those three groups, who's having the most problems. And orthopedics especially has been really, really region, you know, focused and, and that the promise measures break, break that. And I think it's a, in a good way, but it is a little bit of a paradigm shift. So I think those are the three reasons I can think of is one, everybody loves their legacy measures. Two, there are logistic challenges. And three, um, you know, there hasn't been a reimbursement pressure um, that's been strong enough yet that has made people want to do it. I know for my own personal experience, I would rather use something like the ODI, the Os Westry, because I grew up with that. It's like my third best friend. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you talk about measuring things concisely and with good measurement properties, it's hard to argue against promise. And especially if I can get those four items in, I can use it for everyone. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I, do the ODI and then I need to have logic to recognize someone has a neck and give them the NDI. And then I need to have logic to recognize their shoulder and give them, you know, a spady or a dash. So, so that's um, my long winded way of taking up the rest of the time. That's no, okay. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. So for all you who are still, who are still joining us here, you know, um, drop in the comments, if you've learned anything new tonight, um, we'd love to hear from you. If you're on Twitter, um, use hashtag exchange SA. Um, we'll definitely keep the conversation going on there. Also follow at Duke MSK. Um, I think that's, that's, if you can correct me, Steve, that's where a lot of the research is being pumped from. A lot of the social media advertising will be coming um, from at Duke MSK. That's our team. Yeah, we, we use that to disseminate. And um, yeah, actually, we'll probably, there's an Ospro related paper that will probably um, um, just was accepted and I think is indexed now. So we'll probably push that out Monday or Tuesday. We, the team's been telling their um, why I study pain stories this month. So I think we still have a few more weeks. And I think Corey is actually, Corey Simon, who I've mentioned several times now, and he probably owes me a, a fee. Um, <laughs> oh. he, his story will be coming up this week. So you can see, you know, why some of the team members, who most of them are, are PTs. We have an emergency room physician, an ED physician, a chiropractor, um, and PTs are, are on our musculoskeletal team. You know, our goal is basically to have representation from where people seek care for musculoskeletal pain. And, and the ED is a common place. Um, orthopedics is a common place. And, um, you know, we have some primary care um, representation, too. So so thanks for that. And, yeah, um, that's our Twitter handle. Fabulous. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So, again, thank you so much for joining us um, again tonight. I know you're going to get off this call and kind of finalize um, things you need Hopefully, to do for tonight. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully they'll they'll have responded. I sent the slides out around six, so we'll we'll see. But uh, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, you know, keep keep doing the good work for the the students and uh, for the APTA, and you know where to find me if you need me for something else. 
Absolutely. If you can, could you share your email address um, to our audience members if uh, they have if they want to contact you with any follow up questions from the chat? Sure. It's um, stephen.george at duke.edu. Um, and it's S-T-E-V-E-N. Um, so it's pretty easy to find on, you know, the Duke website. They have our they have our email there on the Duke Scholars page. Absolutely. And we'll all the Just students give me will- time to respond. I try to respond to everything, but, um, sometimes my inbox is, um, you know, chock full and, um, unfortunately have to take care of things related to my day job first, but, um, you know, just give me a couple days and, uh, I will eventually respond. Absolutely. I was going to say as students, we'll make sure we honor the 48 hour rule, 48 hours for business days rule. We'll make sure to honor that. Right. All right. Well, again, Steve, thank you so much for joining on everyone who's joining us. Um, thanks for um, coming on. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And so we'll see everyone in two weeks, October 6th. We'll be here with Joe Donnelly. We'll be talking about trigger points, myofascial pain syndrome, and um, dry needling. So we'll see you all then. Thank you so much for coming on, everyone. Awesome. Have a good night.